It is March 1st, and you're locked into Real Talk. Fast-moving show this morning. Jesperson here with you, the whole team, uh, of course, all hands on deck today because, uh, you know, we have a commitment to you that you're going to be in the know. You're going to get the top and most important and most informed insights on the stories that matter most to you. And boy, that's a tall order these days, isn't it? Russia continues to make its way uh, toward this. These Russian, these armed convoys towards Kiev, the Ukrainians, I mean, I mean, valiantly and incredibly defending uh, their country and uh, their key cities uh, doing their best to defend the airports, etc. We want to know what this looks like. What's appropriate international response? Is Canada doing everything it can and should to former diplomats joining us on the show today, including Chris Alexander, live from Nairobi in just a moment. Scott Gilmore in about 10 minutes from now. And then we're going to talk about energy markets, sanctions, Alberta oil pipelines, Russia, We've got a panel coming up you will not want to miss. Uh, Max Fawcett is going to be joining us, as will David Yeager and Melissa Embarkey. That's coming up in about a half hour from now. Plus, we're going to give away our email of the month. Uh, that's right. The, the the dubious distinction, the big award. Uh, somebody's going to take home one of these Real Talk studio mugs for uh, composing and sending in an email that resonated with us more than any other over the past four weeks. So there's a lot of ground to cover. Let's get right to this. Our title sponsor, Bitcoin Well. You hear about them every single day. I want to direct you towards their website, BitcoinWell.com. That's where you can sign up. You can subscribe to their newsletter. Find out what's in the well, whether you're new to Bitcoin or whether you've owned Bitcoin or been encouraged by the prospects of or intrigued by the prospects of cryptocurrency for years. The monthly newsletter, a great, great way to receive the latest Bitcoin news. Check this out at BitcoinWell.com. That's where you can go online and subscribe to their newsletter. Of course, you can also find them under the sponsors tab on our website at RyanJesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Of course, the story of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is one that changes by the hour. Uh, I saw some aerial footage yesterday. Russian military convoy stretching 60 kilometers making its way toward Kiev. This is hundreds of thousands, even millions of Ukrainians are attempting to flee that country. Uh, most significantly uh, toward the Polish border, international, uh, I mean, obviously there are groups, NATO and then international countries in particular, looking at what their appropriate response looks like. And we've seen specific commitments from countries like Germany and Britain and France, the United States, and of course, Canada, which sent its third shipment uh, just the other day of uh, equipment, including anti-tank uh, artillery, uh, night vision goggles, body armor, and the like. Keeping an eye on this story, along with everybody else, obviously, is a longtime uh, politician Chris Alexander, a former Canadian minister of citizenship and immigration, you know, as, as a member of parliament. And of course, he's had a, a long career as a Canadian diplomat as well, working on Russian affairs for 12 years, including two tours at the Canadian embassy in Moscow. He worked for six years in Afghanistan as Canada's ambassador and an official with the United Nations. He's coming to us live middle of the evening in Nairobi. Chris, thanks for making time for us. Welcome back to Real Talk. Thanks for having me, Ryan. It's such you, a pleasure it, always to be with you. Yeah, It doesn't matter where you are in the world. I mean, you're coming to us live from Nairobi right now. I mean, the, the eyes of the world are on this situation in Ukraine because the implications, the stakes are so high. How are you processing what you're seeing? No, they are. And everyone in the world is worried about this, even people across Africa, which, you know, like North America, seems like uh, a long way away. But these are fundamental principles. Uh, I mean, when the Secretary General of the United Nations says that the UN 
charter, its basic uh, tenets have been violated, grievously, grossly violated by Russia, you know that you're into a serious crisis. Uh, the UN's been having a meeting yesterday and today, um, the first, I think, of only 10 they've had since 1950 to deal with a crisis of this magnitude. And, you know, it's about the future of the world. Will borders be respected? Will sovereignty be respected? Uh, will Europe uh, be plunged back into a larger war? And will dictators elsewhere in the world, and there are other dictators in Asia, and uh, Africa, even the Americas, take advantage of this if it goes the wrong way? So everyone's watching. Everyone's worried. Uh, we're right to be focused on this because Canada has always, uh, ha has always had a pretty crucial role to play, even though we're not the biggest player. Yeah, and I want to ask you specifically about Canada's role. You've got a lot of experience working with international agencies, as mentioned in your intro, including work as an official with the United Nations uh, in Afghanistan. There's a lot of talk about what these international agencies can and should be doing here. NATO, perhaps one of those obvious ones, though, of, of course, Ukraine, not a member of NATO. Ukraine's not a member of the EU either. They're trying to gain emergency yeah. admission to the European Union. And then, of course, there is the UN. I mean, scathing indictments of Russia's invasion. Even yesterday, we hear Bob Ray, Canada's representative uh, to the UN, condemning the talk around nuclear warfare, demanding Vladimir Putin lift his finger off that button permanently. A lot of strong talk. But what about the teeth of it, Chris? What do, mm. what do these agencies like NATO or the UN have to contribute to this in, in the sense of dissuading Russia from what it's doing? No, that, that is the question, Ryan. And, and the teeth so far have come from uh, economic action, from sanctions that are now well beyond what we had before, uh, individual sanctions, sanctions against some companies. It's really starting to be an economic embargo, uh, a trade embargo against Russia and um, uh, a blockade. Y you have Russian aircraft not able to use uh, the airspace of all of Europe, the North Atlantic area, the circumpolar area. Um, it it's wreaking havoc with their ability to reach the outside world. Uh, Maersk, the world's biggest shipping company, will not be serving Russia. Uh, the UK has said its ports are closed to Russian-flagged or Russian-owned vessels. So this is serious stuff that we haven't seen since the world wars on this scale. Um, but we need, and, and there needs to be a bigger humanitarian response. There's no question. Uh, the diplomacy has to continue. I mean, you have people at the United Nations, even I think the British, uh, a British official was saying, that perhaps Russia doesn't need to be a permanent member of the Security Council anymore. And there is, you know, I'm not predicting it's going to happen, but it is possible if the majority was strong enough in the General Assembly that that kind of change could happen. So Russia is getting black eyes. Russia is getting isolated. Uh, energy policy is changing. Europe is going to be looking to North America, including Canada, Norway, Qatar for natural gas, other sources to wean itself off Russia. But the real question is military. And NATO doesn't want a direct conflict with Russia, obviously, but there's much more we could be doing to support Ukraine with weapons, people, and I think air power. How do you, well, let's get into that. How do you assess Canada's response to this point and, and what do you think it should look like? Well, I don't think we've been leading. I, I think we've been a solid sort of mid-range player. Um, we haven't been uh, breaking new ground, which is what I think is required from NATO leaders at the moment. It's good that we sent lethal weapons. We should send more. Uh, it's good that we did the training role that started in uh, 2015 and carried right on up to the eve of this invasion. That means that 
10 or 15 percent of uh, Ukraine's um, uh, infantry were trained to some degree by Canada. But we don't just train people to abandon them and leave them to get crushed by Vladimir Putin's uh, uh, artillery. We need to do more for a country that all Canadians consider a friend and ally. We're the we're the biggest home for Ukrainians outside of Russia and and people of Ukrainian origin outside of Russia and Ukraine itself. So um, what could we do? We can uh, give air assets to the Ukrainians. We can support other NATO members who want to do that in a national capacity. We can beef up uh, the supply lines of uh, artillery, uh, portable muni- uh, anti-tank munitions, all the all the weapon systems that Ukrainians have been using to great advantage because they're extremely motivated uh, to not allow the Russians to take control of their country. And while Russia is going to pound their cities, uh, unfortunately, and, and commit war crimes, they don't have enough forces. Vladimir Putin doesn't have enough forces to take the whole country. And so I think we need to settle in for a long fight that uh, in which our goals are to make sure Vladimir Putin fails and Ukraine succeeds in protecting its independence and sovereignty. Chris, this is a this is a civilian question. This is the question that people will just ask over over beers at the at the pub or or at the kids hockey game. Okay, please don't roll your eyes at the question. But the average person will wonder, why doesn't Canada and the U.S. and Britain and Germany and France? I mean, that's a that's a hell of an allied force. I mean, why don't, why, why don't they just head into Ukraine? Why don't they just help the Ukrainians? Why don't they just fly right into Ukraine, land all their F-18s and, and help? So uh, that's a civilian question, yeah. obviously. But but no, no, get- it's it, but 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 it's a real question. It's a question I ask. Yeah. Uh, and, and we have to we have to have an answer to that. Um, I mean, basically, NATO is there. Uh, and Canada is a member of NATO to protect the sovereignty of our countries. Uh, Putin has not invaded Canada's Arctic or Poland, which is a NATO member. Um, They've invaded Ukraine, which is not a NATO member. But that being said, Ukraine came close to joining NATO in 2008. And both the times Canada went to war in Europe on a huge scale in the world wars, it was because uh, a, a dictator, a bully, invaded a smaller European country, Poland in 1939 and Belgium in 1914. This is, these aren't the same circumstances. We don't have a treaty obligation to go to Ukraine's defense, but we have a moral obligation, I think, to make sure that they aren't crushed. Uh, and, and watch this space. I wouldn't be surprised to see NATO allies, all of us or some of us coming together to do much more for Ukraine, I think would be the right thing to do. Okay, Uh, yeah, I I appreciate you taking that question. Uh, Listen, this show's moving fast and I know you've got commitments to get to. So I'll make this our our last question. There's I saw the Americans expelled at least 11 Russians. They accused them of espionage yesterday. Did the American president by way of his press secretary? And then, of course, uh, we're seeing diplomats being pulled elsewhere around the world as well. On that angle, you've worked as a diplomat. What's the significance of that and what does that signal to you? And what should the average person that's watching this story, trying to glean insight, what should they be keeping an eye on? Well, the diplomatic uh, presence and and expulsions or withdrawals of diplomats, that does say something about the way this is escalating. Ukraine has taken all its diplomats home from Russia and vice versa. Those countries are effectively at war if they haven't formally declared war. Uh, There are rumors that the Russians may be pulling out of other countries completely, including Canada. That might indicate uh, that they expect things to escalate. And let's be honest, a lot of the Russian personnel we still have in Canada shouldn't be here. They've been engaged in intelligence, in uh, what they call influence operations and active measures. 
to try and spread disinformation in Canada, to try and uh, influence Canadian politics in ways that we are still catching up with. Um, this has been, you know, Putin has been laying this trap for everyone uh, and trying to polarize politics in many democracies for years and years. I think we have to call an end to that. Uh, and, and those responsible who are, in many cases, intelligence officers should be going home. Uh, Russia has been out of line for 20 years. A lot of us have seen just how extreme Vladimir Putin was assassinating people in, in, in uh, various capitals, invading countries. Uh, the whole world now understands how ruthless he is and what a threat to international stability he is. So if we're, if we're breaking off commercial relations, diplomatic relations shouldn't be far behind. And I think Canada has a responsibility to lead on this, given that we've been so close to Ukraine and are really family for Ukraine in so many respects. And I can't ignore, you know, we've been talking about that and, 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 and we'll wrap here, Chris, but I mean, it's, it's unignorable, even the, even the part of the world, the part of the country I'm talking to you from, there's such a, an, a huge Ukrainian community across the Canadian prairies. That's not news to anybody. Everybody knows that a lot of people are looking at what Canada's role needs to look like with regards to accepting refugees, uh, accepting immigrants uh, to Canada. There's a lot of talk too. I don't want to ask you 15 questions all at once, but people are saying, gosh, it's a shame that Canada or the world didn't take stuff like this more seriously when it was in Syria, as an example. People mm. are alleging that there are, you know, that international right. nations. You're, you're so right to raise that. If we had done a no-fly zone in Syria, I actually think uh, Putin would have been, wouldn't have invaded Ukraine back in 2014. You know, he's a guy who only understands force. You have to push back against him. It's not talk and diplomacy and sanctions uh, that are going to change his behavior. It has to be a show of real firmness. We could have done that 10 years ago in Syria. Unfortunately, the, the cost is higher now, but we still have to do it. That's Chris Alexander, former Canadian Minister of Immigration MP, obviously a former Canadian diplomat and ambassador uh, coming to us live from Nairobi in the middle of family time. We appreciate it, Chris. It's good to see your face. Good to see you too, Ryan. Thanks yeah, you for your bet. interest. Uh, Real Cheers. Talkers, let us know what you make of, of what you just heard. Obviously, that angle of Canada accepting refugees from Ukraine and, and a lot of the other stories and comments swirling around that will fuel conversations on this show in, in weeks and months to come. And we appreciate your feedback. We ask for it on a daily basis. It's the first of the month today, which means that at 16 Friesen Brothers locations across the province of Alberta, it's 15% off from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. That's right. I'm on a minimum $75 purchase. Some exclusions apply. You can see all the details in store. 15% off. This is the day, the first of the month, that our family does the big grocery shop. You know the one I mean? And then we'll top it up with produce here and there. But the first of the month is when we go and load up and we do it at Friesen Brothers. It's Alberta grown, it's Alberta owned, and I guarantee you'll love it there. I wanted to talk to you about artificial intelligence for a second. Have you been paying attention, you know, to some of the ethical issues around AI? I mean, people are realizing that this is the way of the future. I mean, artificial intelligence is integrated now into virtually everything about our lives. If you check out powered.athabascau.ca, you can learn more about their AI ethics certification. I mean, AI tech is obviously a huge part of our digital infrastructure. It's woven into aspects of our daily life in ways that we might not even realize. 
I mean, are we able to keep our eye out for, for AI that could prove to be harmful or unjust or discriminatory? If you want to better your understanding of AI, there's no better way to do it than the flexible platform that is PowerEd at Athabasca University. And a big shout out to our friends at Kubi Energy, providing solar energy solutions to power your life. You know, I've been telling you that Kubi is stationed out of Alberta and BC, Edmonton and Kamloops, which means they can deploy their service techs, their install teams across Western Canada. And they're doing exactly that on farms and big, huge towers and residences and, and garden sheds for that matter. Solar's never been more affordable and more effective. Check out the blog for some of the suggestions on how you can chime in, you know, and, and, and maybe even get in touch with, with Kubi. They've, they've got their finger on the pulse of all those bursaries and reimbursements and subsidies. And if you don't look into it, you never know how your solar energy goals could be attainable today. Well, we'll continue our coverage of uh, what's happening in Ukraine as we speak. We're getting reports that towers are being hit, that bombs are landing in Kiev. Uh, the Russian convoy, I mean, convoys, uh, some of them uh, 60 kilometers in length. Try to wrap your mind around that, indicating that Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, is not close to done. So how do you deal with them? I mean, how do you deal with this? Our next guest has, has written about it in uh, a remarkable piece. You know, of course, Scott Gilmore, editor at large at McLean's, a former Canadian diplomat himself, uh, founder of the charity Building Markets, by the way, recently published the piece, The Only Acceptable Response to Vladimir Putin. You can read about it at McLean's.ca. Scott, kind enough to join us live this morning. Welcome back to the show. It's nice to see you. It's always good to be uh, on your show, right? Yeah, sometimes we get to keep the conversation a little lighter, and then every once in a while we, we go, holy hell, what's going on right now? And, and your piece, uh, you make no bones about it. I mean, you, you basically reference, you know, the end of World War II and where the world was at and how the world's been able to function, relatively speaking, uh, in good order since the 1940s. And, and now you're saying that there's a big decision to be made or else we could rewind almost 100 years. So how are you wrapping your mind around what you're seeing up to the minute in Ukraine? Well, I'll be honest. I'm On, on one hand, I am very, very hardened at Canada's response and, and NATO and European Union's response. It's more than I anticipated, and it's happening faster than I would have hoped. But on the other hand, I am genuinely alarmed at the potential for escalation here. You know, you, you asked uh, Chris, who I, I worked with, actually, when I was in the Foreign Service, very smart on, on uh, Russia and Eastern Europe. But you asked him, you know, why are we not invading? Why are we not sending our own troops in? And the answer I would give is simple. It's, it's nuclear war. Um, you know, I don't think people appreciate what a hair trigger it is for the launch of tactical nuclear or strategic nuclear weapons out of Russia. And us getting involved in with a no-fly zone, for example, what that actually means in practice is Canadian fighter jets shooting down Russian fighter jets and vice versa, and Americans going toe-to-toe, no -to -toe killing Russians. And it's a very, very short walk from there to nuclear war. And so I, I, I'm alarmed, and I'm, and I'm getting messages from some of my colleagues who work in this space, who've, who've uh, spent a lot of time in war zones, who understand these things, frankly, better than I do, and they're alarmed as well. Scott, what are we talking? I mean, gosh, you find I'm trying to find a balance when we do a show like this, which is we need to ask people need a real, including me, a real perspective check on how serious this is and what the stakes are, and what this could actually look like. And at the same time, you know, if I ask you a question like when we talk about strategic nuclear attacks, are we talking about things like 
pipeline infrastructure in Hardesty, Alberta and the Alberta oil sands. And what are we talking about? And people might say, what are you trying to whip up fear and frenzy here? But no, I mean, these are legitimate questions. What's at risk here? You know, so the targeting uh, in nuclear war is is uh, is sort of terrifying once you get to learn a little bit more about it. So you're right. In strategic uh, oil uh, facilities, like, for example, the refinery I worked in in Shored Park, Alberta, when I was in college. Um, yes, that's a target, but it's not just a target for a missile. It's a target for dozens of them because they need to ensure that a missile gets through. But it, it, that doesn't really matter. You know, there have been various uh, studies done by the Pentagon and others that show that even the very limited tactical nuclear exchange, for example, between Pakistan and India, maybe 100 weapons the size of Hiroshima or Nagasaki, which is about as small a nuclear war as we could ever hope for would actually lead to a billion dead from the resulting poisoning of our atmosphere in the Northern Hemisphere, from climate change, from the movement of people. Nobody wins nuclear war. Nobody wins even a, a most limited exchange. And I, I don't want to be Cassandra either. I, don't want to, I didn't plan to come on your show and, and say we all need to run for the basement. But I did feel that we need to understand that there's a spectrum of possibilities here, and that is not an impossible one particularly when we consider the very strange dynamic we have in, in Moscow with Putin and uh, and his oligarchs and his military. OK, can we get into that? I mean, we have an energy roundtable coming up after you, and I'm sure that we're going to talk about Russian ownership of Alberta energy assets and Russian implications and involving steel manufacturing for Alberta pipelines, et cetera, et cetera. But, but what do you mean, the strange relationship? Well, you know, a lot of us assume that Russia is a a a, a, a autocracy that, that Putin is a type of strongman leader that we've seen in a lot of other countries like China or uh, before that in you know West Africa or where have you, where you have somebody who's climbed to the top of a pyramid, imposed himself upon that, and is being supported implicitly by those beneath him, whether it's the oligarchs or generals or what have you. But in Russia, what we have is a strongman who basically built the pyramid beneath him. Those oligarchs are not there supporting Putin. They're there because Putin placed them there. He gave them their contracts, their companies. He allowed them to accumulate their wealth. And therefore, it's very, very difficult for them to put pressure on Putin because the relationship is, frankly, the other way around. And with the military, from what I'm understanding, there is uh, Putin is more and more isolated from his senior leadership than he has been in the past. And so he's not being really open to influence. Generals are not, as you saw from that, you know, that infamous photo of him at a, at a 30 foot long table with yeah. two unhappy generals for at the far end. That's not a scenario where you can, you know, talk truth to power. Scott, how how fragile do you, do you believe Vladimir Putin's leadership to be? I mean, I've seen some people suggesting early on, and, and maybe this is just the raw, raw go Ukraine that everyone's feeling right now. You know, President Zelensky's got a bulletproof vest on, says he's not going anywhere, and we're all cheering for him, but, but, but deep down inside, everybody's kind of going, oh man, like this isn't going to turn out well. Like, I think that's how most people feel, right? And and then we're talking about what to do about Russia, and you write about it, Vladimir Putin's $100 million yacht, and he's brought that back to Russia, and he's got himself personally insulated. But of course, you know, if you really put the screws to Russia and the ruble loses 30 percent like it did yesterday and they've got to shut down their stock market because everybody's just bleeding billions of dollars. The Russian people can't travel. Student visas are gone. They can't use their Apple Pay. I mean, the Russians could get pretty pissed off about this whole thing if they're not there already. Uh, what are the political stakes here for Vladimir Putin? I mean, could, could this be the end of him? Well, I I, I fear that, that there's a lot of wishful thinking going on on yeah. our part, and including including with me. Like we we want to think 
that the arc of history bends towards justice, right? And, and that somebody like Vladimir Putin couldn't possibly be supported by his people. But the very limited polling data that we have seen and what we, when you take a look at some of the other reporting that comes out of Russia, I feel that he's probably got, has a lot more support than we realize. And that might be because of the way that the state, uh, Russian state TV has taken over, that there are very few independent voices. It could be just simple jingoism, nationalism in Russia, which every country, including Canada, is susceptible to. But I don't see him being pushed out anytime soon. Now, that being said, every strongman is untouchable until he's being chased through the streets. You know, we've seen that with Muammar Gaddafi, with, with Soharto in, in Southeast Asia, with some of, of Putin's uh, previous uh, uh, predecessors. So I don't know. Your, your piece is great. People have to read it. I mean, just the opening line. <laughs> you had me at hello, Scott. You're right. It would be difficult <laughs> to exaggerate the danger of this moment. Uh, and, and and you go on to there. And I want to get into some of the steps that you say Canada should take. And since you, you wrote this piece five days ago, Canada has has taken some steps. And, and, and so I'll get you to comment on that. But Dwayne is watching us live right now on YouTube on the live chat. And he says he's got family in Ukraine right now. Dwayne obviously cares a great deal about what's going on. And, and he says a question for Gilmore. He says, how can we be assured that this doesn't wind up as World War Three? Can we be? Yeah, uh, Dwayne, I, I, we can't be. Um, I, you know, I'm relatively confident we've managed to muddle our way through from since Hiroshima and Nagasaki to 2022 without another nuclear exchange. And, and it's quite possible, quite likely that that's what, where we're going to get past here. That path forward, though, I, I don't know what it looks like right now. The off ramps for Putin, they're not obvious. He has put all of his uh, his chips on the table for invading and controlling and taking over the Ukraine. And so giving him a face-saving exit, a face-saving solution is a tough one. The only thing we can hope for in the short term is more of these uh, talks that took place, for example, on the Belarus border yesterday, and maybe looking at, uh, for example, I think some of the things they were talking about yesterday was making sure there was no targeting of civilian infrastructure. Well, you know, Ryan, you and I have seen the photos today. That didn't seem to take. Um, But we can talk again, see if we can take hospitals and train stations off the list to allow people to evacuate. Maybe we can talk about humanitarian pause. There are incremental moments that we can carve out of this crisis to give us the breathing room, to help us to find a way for all of us to step back. I saw these. I know everyone's seen them, but I'm seeing these uh, images of uh, babies in in the neonatal ICU, uh, these infants, I mean, or, or immunocompromised kids that, with leukemia that are receiving cancer treatments and they've got them in parking garages and on trying to on portable oxygen tanks. And it's just, it just makes a guy... You know, like your heart's in your throat the whole time. And I know that the entire world is is watching right now. So you suggest, you know, Western nations can disconnect the Russian economy from the international monetary system. A lot of people talking about SWIFT. Allies could freeze state funds, kick them out of international organizations. We're seeing a lot of that on the sporting front, which is significant, I think. You know, ban propaganda arms like like Russia Today, RT, which, of course, Bell, Rogers, they're all pulling off their platforms here in Canada. You say you got to open the floodgates for military support to Ukraine. We're seeing some of that. Ottawa can apply deep economic sanctions. And then you get into this Magnitsky Act. And I'm curious to know if you think it does it run parallel at all with regards to political capital and Trudeau just invoking the Emergencies Act at home? Or is this just two completely separate stories that have nothing to do with one another? Could the PM pull off both in the same month? 
Yeah, I, I think they're disconnected. Um, I, you know, I've, I've spent enough time in Ottawa and paying attention to Ottawa and, and other, and other uh, capital cities to know that uh, the grand plan, the strategy, the conspiracy is almost never the case. It's almost always accident and incident and, and happenstance. So in this case, I don't think there is any um, necessarily connection between the two. Um, if you And proof of that, for example, is seeing that in countries that didn't have an emergency act or a trucker convoy in the last uh, the last three months are doing pretty much the exact same thing we are doing and frankly doing it a little bit faster for the most part. Scott, what have you seen from Canada that you think is is a bold move? Um, you write in your piece, you say it's I'm paraphrasing you, you say it's time for Canada to stop asking or, you know, the trend that Canada has of why we can't do things. Uh, you said it's time for Canada to start doing things. What is Canada doing well, and and what has Canada not yet done? Where you're going, this is this is an immediate one. If you were the, you know, the PMO's principal secretary, chief advice, you'd be going, we're, we got to do this right now. Well, first of all, I'm I'm going to do something that I don't think I've ever done in your show before, which is going to give this government a little bit of credit. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very very critical of them, particularly on foreign policy, uh, and and very broadly for moving slowly, for always sort of half-assing it. And in this case, when I wrote that column, I anticipated that they would do maybe 10% of what I was proposing, and I think they're pretty close to 90% right now. Um, So I think they need some credit for that. And I think that a lot of that credit goes to Christia Freeland. Um, This is clearly an issue that's very personal to her. It's an issue that she's been working on for, for decades. And her personal experiences and her voice and her credibility on that, I believe, are carrying the day in a lot of conversations with our allies. Um, I mean, to be honest, I, I imagine that there's been a few foreign diplomats who've said to themselves, Jesus, if Canada is taking it this seriously, then maybe we should too, because we're, we are notorious for showing up and having a lot of talk, but not not backing it up with a lot of action. So I, I think we're doing a lot well, uh, or a lot very well right now. What we could do more of? Well, there's three broad categories of things that we can do with the situation. One is helping Ukraine. And we're doing... More of that, than again, than I expected, but not as much as we could. So, for example, take these Carl Gustav uh, anti-tank weapons that we promised to ship, 100 of those. That sounds great, except they're really sort of two, three generations behind what is the current state of the art in, in, in that field. These are based on a weapon system that was designed in 1946. Uh, these weren't, We're not sending them the equivalent of... Uh, you know, they are best and our brightest in terms of military hardware. We could do better than that. The other things that we can do is, in terms of a second category, is carrots, or sorry, sticks against the Russians. And that's where we're excelling right now. All of these sanctions are sticks. They're all, they're all disincentives for the Russians to continue the actions they're doing right now. What we're lacking on, though, is the third category, which is carrots. We need to figure out a way to make them leaving, uh, them stopping, them slowing down, become more attractive. And again, there aren't a lot of options there right now, other than rolling back some of the current sanctions we have. But I have seen some very interesting conversations saying, you know, a post-Putin Russia could be something we could start talking about is a Marshall Plan for a post-Putin Russia, or even, you know, a post-Ukrainian invasion Russia, some sort of promise of engagement that would make it look even more attractive for them to leave. Uh, Scott, in closing, we're talking to Scott Gilmore, editor-at-large, McLean's. Uh, you can read his piece at McLean's.ca. I encourage you to do so. Uh, we're going to be talking energy in, in a few minutes with a, a roundtable, and, and, and I think there's going to be some healthy debate. I'm pretty sure they're not going to see eye-to-eye on everything, but you don't blame the average Canadian or the average global citizen for, for saying it's time to clamp down on Russia. It's time to you know, put the heel on the, on the throat and try to choke out the economy. And, of course, a big part of Russia's economy, much like Alberta's, Canada's for that matter, is oil is energy right 
But, yeah. you know, we're, we're realizing that, you know, almost 60 percent of the steel uh, being used uh, to build the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion is is a, a company that is almost two thirds owned by Russian oligarchs with ties to Putin. Right. So so is that Russian steel? Is that Putin's pipeline? I mean, if you're being dramatic, that's probably the headline I'd put on it. You know, the prime minister announces uh, yesterday, I think it was the ban of all crude oil imports from Russia. Uh, that industry, more than 30 percent of Russia's federal revenues, but, you know, said to send a powerful message whether or not Canada is a big player on that import. You can comment on that. And then, of course, released yesterday reporting that the Alberta government, by way of AIMCO, the Alberta Investment Management Corp., a lot of Albertans know about that. It's how a lot of your money's managed, uh, owns millions of dollars in Russian assets. Uh, in other words, it could hurt Alberta. It could hurt Albertans. Now, it feels like a crass question to be asking about people's bottom lines, but that's what people care about. So where do you think the focus needs to be here? And, and how would you tee up our energy roundtable coming up on the show? Well, you know, I, I think we could overemphasize the size of the Russian economy and the damage it could do to us by cutting it off. You know, okay. take that the issue with the steel and the pipeline. If you gave me a, 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 a cell phone, a laptop and a decent lawyer, I'm pretty sure I could round up a new supplier within 24 hours. And, you know, the Russian economy we, we like to think of it as a superpower. The Russian economy is about the size of Australia's. It's actually smaller than Canada's. And yes, we'll be able to find very specific exports that have an impact on Canada or have some of our allies, but you kind of have to look a little hard for that. So for example, take the, the announcement that was made yesterday that we're cutting off Russian oil. Well, it's my understanding we actually haven't imported Russian oil for over two years now. So it, there, there are ways around this. There's ways to solve all these problems. And I'm pretty sure that very few Albertans, except for those who have a very, very specific predilection for a very, very specific brand of Russian vodka, are going to be hurt by this. Yeah. Does that is that I mean, it's it's obviously symbolic, but symbolism's big, right? I mean, a, a Russian tennis player writing no war, please on a on a camera lens is symbolic, but it's huge. Right. Uh, pulling Russian vodka or Russian liquor off liquor store shelves in Alberta. Does it does it? do anything does it make us feel better does it make us you know people talk about slacktivism right we, we we click like on a tweet and we feel like we've done our part i mean how, how would you assess small steps like that well you know i've been a long time critic of slacktivism working in international aid and, and overseas and in conflict zones it's a way for a lot of uh, you know wealthy western folks to make themselves feel a little bit better but that being said Cumulatively, it does have an impact. You know, when Canadian politicians see that the folks in, I think it was, was it Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, they were the first to say that they weren't going to drink the Russian vodka and took it off the shelves. That sends a message to Canadian politicians that there is some support behind what they're proposing to do and it puts some wind in their sails. So cumulatively, it all matters. It raises the awareness amongst Canadian voters and Canadian consumers that there are some real issues here. And when we, when we you know, decide that we're not going to buy that Russian vodka, we are also simultaneously deciding that we're part of the struggle, and that's important. Scott Gilmore is a former Canadian diplomat and editor at large, McLean's Magazine. You can read his piece, The Only Acceptable Response to Vladimir Putin, at mcleans.ca. Always a pleasure, Scott. Thanks for your insight. Always a pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, you bet. Coming up in just a few moments, we'll get to that energy roundtable. The team behind the scenes always working to coordinate that, and, and, and we're going to be uh, checking in with with three different voices on, on the energy and pipeline file. Always uh, you know, one of the benefits of, of you joining us live as we live stream this show at 1030 Eastern, 830 Mountain Time on weekdays is that you can contribute to that conversation. So we keep an eye on our hashtag Real Talk RJ. And of course, we're also keeping 
keeping an eye on our live chat. And uh, that's a great way for you to get involved and make sure that the angles that are important to you are addressed as best we can. Our hashtag is powered by our friends at Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider. You can compare rates today on all three of the utilities, the necessities that they're providing, electricity, natural gas, and internet at parkpower.ca. They bundle their rates, which means if you want to go to them for two or even three, uh, maybe you're happy to bring your business over with electricity and natural gas, as an example. You're going to save on administrative costs. Of course, they partner with our friends at Kubi Energy, too. They've got that solar buyback program. Definitely worth asking about if you've already invested in green energy don't forget the promo code 2022 dash real talk gets you 70 dollars off your first bill at parkpower.ca if you're lucky enough to be heading out of town maybe get a little bit of sand between your toes maybe you're gonna be standing on a tea box in a few days from now how lucky are you why not keep some money in your pocket by parking your vehicle at jet set parking that's right they're right there at edmonton international airport they're a pleasure to deal with I guarantee you that much. You know that your reservation includes free shuttle service from heated shelters directly to the departures area at the airport. Oh, and it's $7 a day to park your car at Jet Set Parking if you pre-book at least 24 hours ahead of time using the promo code REALTALK. That's the promo code REALTALK at jetsetparking.com. For airport parking from now, book all the way through till the end of 2022. And again, sustained congratulations to our friends at Local Environmental Services, a a recent rebrand, and they did a beautiful job. You've known them as local waste for the quarter century that they've been family owned and operating in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Well, they're not just waste and recycling. They do water hauling. They put up temporary fencing. They've got portable toilets. Maybe you're doing a big music festival this summer, or maybe your community's coming together to celebrate the season Keep in mind, localenvironmental.ca is where you can request a quote. And of course, Local Environmental presenting Trash Talk every Friday here on the show. You want to get something off your mind, email it in to us anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Make sure you label it as Trash Talk. We'll talk energy in just a moment. I wanted to read this email. I got this yesterday from Stephanie Stephanie, this is a, an email that means so much to us, says as an Edmontonian who, who I feel she says absolutely has my finger on the pulse of Calgary. I have to be honest, I completely missed the story of Latjor Tool, the 41 year old man who was shot dead by Calgary police uh, just a short time ago. It was on February 19th. She says, I missed the story. I missed its details. Ukraine and uh, the auto occupation and so many other things have distracted me. They've been at the forefront of the news. Plus, I love the Olympic Games, and I'll admit that that also took my attention away from day-to-day news for the past while. Stephanie says, either way, your panel yesterday on Monday was so difficult to hear. I'm in my mid-40s, and I feel like I I know how, how far we've come as a society, but we really have so much further to go to show true empathy to our neighbors Stephanie says, what, what can we do to amplify the voices that need to be heard? You know, mental health uh, can be such a scary subject. Right? You know, there, there's considerations that, that a lot of folks that seem to be in charge of making the rules or enforcing those rules really don't have any clue about what's going on. She says, I encourage you and your team, Ryan, to keep going with these conversations. This is certainly not the first story along these lines, nor will it be the last. I am sadly certain. I like how she put that. I mean, I don't like it, but you know what I mean? She says, we need to figure this out. 
being acknowledged as a human being should not be based on the amount of melatonin in our skin or whether or not English is our first language. She says, I just love this platform, Real Talk, and the conversations and learning that happens every time I tune into the podcast. That from Stephanie. That means the world to us, Stephanie. And thanks so much for taking the time to be in touch. Well, there's a lot to talk about, right? (laughs) I mean, we haven't even mentioned for a fact, like Sam, actually, I think I'm going to maybe drop in here on my Twitter poll. We haven't even mentioned the fact yet. And and here we are, you know, 40 minutes into the show today, our energy roundtable coming up in, in a minute. But it's March 1st, which means that there are going to be changes to COVID restrictions in Ontario and in Alberta and in other jurisdictions. In Alberta, virtually all COVID restrictions, this is our home province, are lifted today. Now, Edmonton still has its mask bylaw in place. so We can provide some clarifying details on that in just a bit. Edmonton business, I know, are are bracing for a bit of conflict. This is going to be up to Edmonton City Council on March 8th, so a week from today. They're going to meet. Uh, to see if the criteria is there to lift Edmonton's face coverings bylaw, which has been in place for the better part of a year. But Alberta wide, that mask mandate is lifted, as are others like capacity limits and large entertainment venues and the like. It's going to go sort of back to normal in a way. And I know not everybody feels like we're there yet, for sure. But we wanted to gauge where you're at with this on this March 1st. And so I ask you in an unofficial, unscientific Twitter poll as of today, March 1st, virtually all COVID restrictions are lifted. Will you continue to wear a mask in public, we've got about 2,100 votes at this point. There's still plenty of time left. I just put it up right before we went on about 40 minutes ago. Uh, so I'm suspecting we're going to see, I don't know, eight, 10,000 votes on this one. It'd be a good one to this point so far, just under 65%, 64.6%. Let's say two out of three of you say you're going to continue to wear a mask in public. About one in four of you, 24% of you say it depends on the situation. And about 11.7, we'll call it 12% of respondents say no. So just over one in 10 say, I will not continue to wear a mask in public. I do not believe that there's a right or wrong answer here. Uh, aside from situation specific type conversations, I think you know what I mean. If you're around somebody that's immunocompromised or has specific considerations, if you're in a crowded room, if uh, you know there's somebody you know experiencing uh, some type of scenario that would require some empathy or understanding, then of course, I believe the average person will adjust their behavior. But in so many ways, as many people may feel like they still want to keep wearing the KN95 like I do when I go out, quite honestly, other people might say I'm ready just to breathe easy. And we're open to your thoughts on that. And we'll continue to have these conversations. Let's talk energy. Let's talk pipelines. Let's talk economic sanctions. Alberta's premier, before we get to our three panelists, had this to say just the other day. This is Jason Kenney, who obviously sees this conflict in Ukraine uh, spearheaded by Russians as an opportunity to champion Alberta and Canadian oil and specifically pipelines. Here he is, Premier Kenney. President Biden, a year ago, arbitrarily and retroactively retroactively vetoed the Keystone XL pipeline that would have delivered over 800,000 barrels a day of responsibly produced oil to, to help fuel the American economy. Today, the United States imports over 800,000 barrels a day of oil from Vladimir Putin's Russia, uh, enriching the Russian Treasury to finance Putin's aggression. This makes no sense as a matter of national security or of energy security. And so I call on Prime Minister Trudeau to pick up the phone and call the president and say it is time to move away from uh, 
consuming from financing Russian aggression through these massive energy imports. That's Alberta's Premier Jason Kenney a week ago today. Max Fawcett is a columnist with National Observer, former editor of Alberta Oil and Vancouver magazines. Uh, you've read Max's work, no doubt, in the Globe and Mail, McLean's, The Walrus, and you've seen him commenting for the CBC. Uh, Melissa Embarkey is a policy analyst and outreach coordinator for the McDonald Laurier Institute. She spent 15 years or so in Alberta working in the oil and gas pipeline and mining industries. Uh, she hails from the Muscoquan First Nation in the province of Saskatchewan. And David Yeager is an energy policy analyst and oil and gas writer. He's been analyzing the provincial and national energy policies since the introduction of Pierre Elliott Trudeau's national energy program in 1980. You can probably see David tense up right there as I say that. David is the author of the 2019 book From Miracle to Menace, Alberta, A Carbon Story. David, why don't we start with you? What do you make of what Alberta's Premier Jason Kenney had to say a week ago? He's certainly been banging the drum about Alberta oil. This is this is out of that ethical oil type playbook. You think it's going to resonate? Is it effective? I feel old enough without you telling people how old I really am. But anyway, I, I can't even look, apologize, David. Uh, look, there, there are so many spins on this uh, that that uh, if you go back to everything to do with Keystone. But I think if you wanted to take the spaceship to 30,000 feet, the success of Alberta's oil industry is inversely proportional to how often pipelines are on the front page. And they've been on the front page for 10 years. And it started with the Northern Gateway hearings in 2012. And then it went to the Line 9 reversal. And then it went to Energy East. And then it went to the tanker ban. Then it went to the cancellation of Northern Gateway. And then it went to the first uh, cancellation of Keystone. And then it went to the second cancellation of Keystone. Anyways, it was back in the paper just the other day <clears throat> with the attack on the construction equipment on the coastal gasoline pipeline. And, of course, now TMX is on the front page because it, there's cost overruns. And Bridge Line 3 was on the front page forever and ever and ever. So this is politics. It's always been about politics. And uh, Kenny is a politician. So he has, uh, of all the three markets that have been denied um, Alberta oil by uh, pipeline opposition, uh, Keystone XL went south to the Gulf of Mexico. Northern Gateway was meant to go to Asia and Energy East was meant to go to New Brunswick and then on to international markets. The one government that has most been publicly vacillating on oil is the Biden administration. They have said he ran on a very much uh, uh, climate change um, de-oil campaign. And then he, on his way to the COP26 meeting, he asked uh, OPEC to produce more oil. So look at it, all the all the pipelines that have been blocked for various reasons and look at the history and look at the fact that uh, Kenny's currently suing uh, the people for the money they spent to dig under the 49th parallel. This isn't surprising. Melissa, it's, uh, it's all politics all the time. Melissa, we know that we, we know that pipelines are politics and, and in Canada and in Alberta, politics are pipelines for sure. The question is, is this the time and can that politicking be effective? What's your assessment? I think it's time we start talking about energy independence and, you know, having Canadian oil run within our country. I think it's time we open those conversations about pipelines and getting First Nations communities involved. You know, we've been wanting to be part of this economic development for years. Like we didn't just appear in this picture in the last couple of years. We've been spending decades trying to be partners in pipelines and trying to partner in oil and gas operations. So I think it's time we have those conversations because it's not just for Canadians, it's for Indigenous people as well. 
Max, I want to reference a couple of the tweets that you've pushed out uh, with regards to Premier Kenny's advocacy for Alberta pipelines and for Canadian energy. Here's one example. Uh, you know, Kenny says now if Canada uh, really wants to help defang Putin, then let's get some pipelines built. Alberta stands ready, willing and able to supply the energy needed to displace Russia from global markets. You say always with the pipelines, this guy. It sounds to me like, you know, you say this, you know, whatever the pipeline is, KXL in particular wouldn't be shipping any barrels now or the foreseeable future you say stop it with this why do you have no patience for jason kenny's politicking i think it's crass um you know he's taking advantage of a a crisis that that is going to lead to a lot of people getting killed to talk his own book and it's a familiar book um you know as you said if kxl was in service today or sorry if kxl had been approved by the biden administration it wouldn't be shipping any barrels today it wouldn't be shipping barrels for quite a long time uh, and if we were to sort of reembark on our pipeline dialogue in this country, we'd be looking at the end of the decade before we'd be seeing barrels flowing uh, into Europe. So if, if we want to help Europe, if we want to help uh, the Ukrainian people, if we want to get uh, Russia out of out of the continent, then we should be supporting renewable energy on the continent. We should be supporting green hydrogen exports from Quebec. That's how we help uh, Europe, not by talking about more pipelines uh, the way we have here for the last, as David said, the last 12 years. Um, you know, but it's interesting to me that, that Kenny is so willing to talk about dictator oil. He's not willing to talk about dictator oil money that's in the oil patch here in Canada. There's a company in Alberta called Spartan, um, Spartan Delta, uh, market cap of over a billion dollars. Its largest shareholder is one of Putin's friends, uh, Igor Makarov, a, a Russian billionaire, an oligarch. Um, and the steel that's going into uh, both Trans Mountain and the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline, made by a company called Evraz, uh, which is a subsidiary of a British company that's owned by three Russian oligarchs who are actually on the United States Treasury Department's list of Putin's friends in 2018. So let's have that conversation about dictator oil money. Uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to know what our ethical oil and gas industry is going to do to to make sure that that money isn't being used to develop our resources here. Okay, well, let's talk about it right now, David. They're Russian. <laughs> there's been a love-hate relationship with Russia for some time. Uh, it was one of the issues that came up yesterday was uh, Trudeau triumphantly uh, banning Russian oil imports. That's pretty easy. There aren't any. <laughs> they, uh, there's a refined product comes in, but uh, we never miss an opportunity. The The idea that Russia is a bad guy is about a week old, two weeks old. I mean, it's never been a great place to work, but the communication and the interchange, commercial interchange between the Canadian oil industry and the Russian oil industry dates back decades. And that's simply because of the weather. Uh, Canadian oil field service companies and Canadian E&P companies have gone into Russia uh, for decades. We have some of the best cold weather technology and Camps, catering, frack spreads, money, uh, expertise, and it has been reciprocal. Uh, and so the uh, so the idea that this is new. This is the this is the idea that this is particularly bad. It was it used to be the Chinese that were bad, if you recall, when the oil when the Chinese had a, a great interest in investing in the oil sands and they were buying companies. I believe it was about 2013 uh, when Stephen Harper said they were going to start screening the imports of. Uh, of Chinese funding into the oil sands. They started screening uh, transactions. The 
takeover by Xina, Chinese National Oil Company of Nexen squawked out of the wire. So we so we sort of move around and, you know, good points, Mac brings up good points, is, is if we're going to do uh, various levels of economic sanctions, what are we going to do? But I just want to point out, Typically, when there's a war in the past, and this is this is something that's got nothing to do with renewables or got nothing to do with the steel mills being bought by the Russians. Typically, when you got into a shooting war, the first thing you did was shut off the enemy's fuel supply. <laughs> was, uh, you know, and this goes back to every war we've ever been in. You go to the other side and you hit their fuel depots and their pipelines. And so this is the only shooting war in which Everybody is carefully trying to make sure that the supply of oil and gas from Russia and Europe is not interrupted. It's um, it's fairly peculiar on many fronts and a lot more uh, a lot more complex than the nationality of one of the oil companies in Canada. Well, and Melissa, I want to ask you about that because there there are many complicated angles or inconvenient angles to to, to global industry and trade in a number of fronts. I mean, geez, I'm not going to get us off track here talking about Canada selling armored vehicles to the Saudis. That that's one example. You can talk about you know trying to cripple other economies while avoiding uh, self sustained damage economic activity as well. But when it comes to oil and gas, when it comes to pipeline expansion, when it comes to the ownership of, of multi-billion dollar assets in the oil sands and otherwise, I mean, do there need to be those kind of inconvenient truths? I mean, is Canada and is Alberta in a tough spot right now when it comes to imposing pressure on Russia while trying to keep Alberta's economy healthy? That's as politically important to the premier as anything. I definitely think uh, David covered a lot of it on an international scale. Um, when it comes to Alberta, you know, we're, we're landlocked, you know, any which way we look at it, whether it's through BC or whether it's out east, we're landlocked. So we need to figure out, you know, how we're going to transport product in a safe, efficient manner. And that should be the conversation that's happening, not how are we going to stop this industry, but how can we make it you know, environmentally friendly, you know, there are technologies out there that are helping pipelines. And, you know, we had one that came through my community in Saskatchewan, and they implemented this new technology where they can detect corrosion sooner, where they can detect leaks sooner. So it's stuff like this that we need to be talking about, not how are we going to stop? Yeah, no, but you, but you won't you won't find any argument from me. Uh, well, I should be careful how I say that. But let me put it this way. I'm, I'm pro pipeline. I'm in support of pipelines. And I believe that there's impressive technology there. But that doesn't take away Russian involvement in these companies or Russian provision of steel for the pipelines, et cetera. I mean, is that like how do you navigate that if you're if you're the premier or if you're the prime minister, if you're someone that's concerned about economic activity in Alberta, how do you navigate Russian involvement in these companies? I mean, what's the message? I guess what I'm asking is like to the Canadian people, what would be a, an appropriate message, do you think, from the premier? I definitely think, you know, imposing sanctions where we can is the answer. Um, you know, if we can find other ways where they've invested in different, um, you know, operations in Alberta, well, let's get those numbers out there and let's be uh, transparent about it. And let's see where these sanctions would make sense in the future and now. Max, what do you think? I mean, the same question to you. I mean, look, I don't think the idea that Russian is a bad actor is a week old. Uh, Russia has been killing journalists for, for many years. It has been targeting minorities for many years. Uh, and it has been Jason Kenney and the other people who like to talk about ethical oil who have been pointing that out to us. They've been saying, you know, that, that Russia is bad. Russia is terrible. The world should use more Canadian oil because we're not that way. But we're taking their money to develop some of their oil and ship it to market. So how is that 
not a giant hypocrisy. So I mean, what, I think what, what always- are you saying that we should do, though, Max? Like, are, are you saying that the Canadian companies that require that capital investment should say absolutely not? I mean, you know, what, what's your take? Yeah, I think a hard line is no money from Russian oligarchs, um, you know, so Spartan Delta can find another shareholder to buy that piece out um, on the steel fabrication. I'm sure there's other Canadian steel fabricators who would be happy to step up and, and meet that demand. Maybe it costs a little more. But if we're going to talk about how ethical our oil is, it can't be flowing through barrels that are funded with with, as Jason Kenney calls it, dictator oil money. Hmm. Um, you know, now now on, you know, on how we help this situation going forward, you know, we have to convince people in Quebec and B.C. that they will support any additional energy infrastructure in this country. It's not up to the people of Alberta. I hate to tell you this. It's up to the people in the markets where those pipelines are going to terminate. And if we're going to convince people in Quebec to support a new LNG terminal there or two LNG terminals to help our, our European allies, we can't have these sorts of low-hanging fruit sitting out there for opponents of projects to pick. It's too easy. David, what's your assessment? I mean, what sort of an impact does that have on the international or on the Canadian industry for that matter? If, if you take a, a stand like Max has proposed, no money from Russian oligarchs. One of the reasons that uh, Russian money has uh, come into Canada for the oil and gas business is because Western money has been told it cannot. The fossil fuel divestment movement, the ESG movement, as uh, in Europe and the United States. I had uh, lunch with an investment banker yesterday, and he used to manage money uh, on behalf of uh, a number of uh, American institutional investors. And he was telling me that basically they all have new ban- mandates not to invest in the business. And so we uh, we used to be self-financing. Uh, the uh, Canadian oil industry used to reinvest 110% of its gas flow. So there's other forces at play. The uh, the I do not believe that, I don't know if Canada has, Alberta has the legal authority to do this. I do know that uh, the moral authority on BP and Shell was exercised. Now that's a little different. That was where BP actually owned uh, 19.75% of Rosneft. And Shell owned uh, equity participation in some major uh, export projects like gas, uh, Sackland Island and so on. And so they they are being pressured in the court of public opinion to divest their ownership in in uh, in these assets. And uh, I think if this if this comes to light, it might be interesting to see what it means. I don't know the scope. I think Melissa had a really good point. Uh, the degree of uh, foreign ownership of Russian foreign ownership, but I can tell you, as someone who uh, still scrambles on the street of Alberta's oil industry looking for money, uh, that that the <laughs> one of the reasons that you take capital from Russia is capital from the people that help build this province is no longer available, hmm. and that is uh, hopefully something that over the course of time, the ESG movement will reflect on things like Max mentioned. And wonder if, if maybe perhaps as you, if you did want to take out a Russian shareholder to do the greater good, where would you get the money? With the same people that have said, wait, won't invest in oil and gas. Is this enough of a moral case to move the needle and say, okay, we changed, we're just kidding, we changed our mind. And in this particular case, we'll help you because I don't know where the money would come from. Melissa, Max talks about, are we still saying social cap, social license? Are we still using that phrase? But but that's what Max is referencing. What, what needs to be secured, uh, groomed and secured 
in BC and Quebec in particular, the jurisdictions that he named. Do you think it's possible in this day and age, Melissa? I mean, you, you know, one of the reasons that you and I have connected is you're, you're, you're outspoken and you're an adamant supporter of Canadian energy. And, and I wonder if you think that on home soil, so to speak, it's still possible to make those projects happen, the ones that Max is talking about. I definitely think it is. Um, and it could happen with Indigenous engagement. You know, what we're seeing out there with the protesters isn't the view of people who work in this industry. And I think we need to start separating out the protesters from the First Nations communities who support and work with operators on large scale projects. The thing that we can do, you know, is we can maximize on this. If you're looking for investors, look at a First Nations community, look at the businesses that are out there that are wanting to invest in these infrastructures like pipelines and more oil and gas or LNG, whatever it may be, we're there. And people just don't see that what they're seeing are the protesters that are sitting at the end of a pipeline and we need to change that narrative and i think once we start bringing an awareness to indigenous participation it'll definitely change the perception of this industry so is this melissa is this like you know and, I, and i've drawn some 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 fire from my fellow canadians in past for suggesting that we're really bad at telling our stories and in particular i had alberta beef in the crosshairs i don't think that they did a very good job of telling their story over the years and they're starting to figure it out you could probably say the same thing for alberta's oil sands and i look at a lot of the reclamation i mean i'm sure that all four of us probably have friends that work on the environmental side or the reclamation side of oil and gas and they're very intently proud of what they do but i don't see a lot of that work showcased are we just bad at telling our stories, Melissa? We definitely are. Like I worked in abandonment and reclamation for close to five years. You know, I've seen an oil site go from, you know, some, with an oil head on it and pipelines running through it to farmland, you know, five years later. That's the kind of work that's being done out there. We probably plant the most trees in Canada when we do reclamation. So operators aren't really telling their story and Canadians aren't really getting that story. And I think we need to be able to, you know, come to some sort of consensus on what we're going to showcase in our country because all we're seeing are negative and bad images. We're not seeing the good that we're doing. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting point from Melissa Max, and I'd love for you to touch on it. She says we're seeing a lot of the demonstrators, the protesters at the end of the pipeline, uh, maybe not uh, you know, as many voices from supportive communities al along the way. I will acknowledge that I intend for us, I mean, I love conversations that go like this. If the four of us were having coffee, this is how it would go. Uh, we do intend to talk about Ukraine and Russia and sanctions and Canadian oil and all of that, and, and, and I trust the three of you we can bring it back to that context but a big part of that i guess is self-sufficiency and market access and it's part of a bigger conversation max is it just a breakdown of storytelling i, I suspect you're going to tell us you think it's more complex than that but but how do you assess what we're talking about yeah i mean the the industry has been sort of telling itself this for quite some time that if they only had you know the opportunity to tell their story and get the facts out there people would change their mind and i can tell you having been in in the markets where the minds need to be changed that's just not the case, you know. Maybe it was ten years ago, um, but they they chose to listen to the engineers rather than the storytellers at that time. Now they need to change their story. Uh, they need to not tell it better. They need to actually change it. And to David's point, uh, you know, about the the fact that well, we had to take Russian money because you mean ESG investors wouldn't wouldn't give us your money. That's not a very good story. Uh, that you have to take dictator oil money because the people who care about the environment won't give you their capital. Uh, you know, I, I think. The solution is driving down emissions. The solution is actually making meaningful change uh, on a lot of these environmental issues. It's not just hiring 
the right people to tell the story better. Hmm. I want to give each of you an opportunity for one last word, so to speak, and, and, and use your editorial license. If there's a point we've not yet covered, uh, David's eyes just light up. Uh, there is a time oh, no. limit, Jaeger. There's a time limit. But no, but in all seriousness, if there's a point that you think is relevant to this conversation, a point we've not yet made, I want to give you a chance to make it. David, you first. The uh, Canada as a country is a work in progress. The oil, Western oil producers made their first attempts to get Montreal on Western oil in 1957. What had happened was 65 years ago, we went the first time that we went to Quebec saying, could you please buy our oil? The United States had put restrictions on imports to support their own oil industry. The Borden Commission was in place at the time. And in the end, uh, imported oil was cheaper in Montreal. And so the Borden Commission put in the Ottawa Valley line in 1961. And we did, we did get some access to market. And of course, the U.S. vacillates. The last time we've had a conversation like this, and it always seems to be something awful has to happen somewhere else before we talk about energy security supply. And it was 50 years ago next year when the OPEC embargo of the United States and the European countries that supported Israel in the 73-74 Arab-Israeli war when the, when the boycotts came in. And for the next 10 years, as oil went from $3 to 30 and the economy collapsed, melted a terrible economic recession. Uh, interest rates went to double digits. Inflation went to double digits. We had this uh, incredible navel-gazing about things that Matt talked about, foreign ownership. At that time, there was great concern about foreign ownership because we discovered our oil industry, our industry was foreign oil, not who foreign, but foreign period. There was great uh, hand-wringing about Trudeau ordered a pipeline to be built from Sarnia to, to Montreal. And then we went to sleep again. Oil went down and, and nobody cared. And so I, what, what the thing that bothers me the most about this conversation today is the blood that had to be spilled as a country to have it. That's that's the point I'd like to leave with. All right. Appreciate that. Melissa. I think we'd be really naive to think that there won't be another crisis, you know, and we're really naive if we're not thinking about how we're going to be energy independent in the future. And I think including, you know, we have to start including Indigenous people in this conversation going forward because we're a big part of the environmental process. That doesn't necessarily mean we're against projects in any way. We're, we know the land, you know, we've worked with the land and we have solutions that just aren't being listened to. You know, renewables are one part of the conversation. EVs are one part of the conversation. We have to start looking at the operators now and saying, okay, how can you reduce emissions? We need to start including them in this, in this, you know, whole scope of things. So we can't be leaving people out of the conversation just because we don't agree with their industry. We need to start including them. And I would just like to end it off with that. I appreciate that, Melissa. Uh, Max, so we, I mean, we've covered obviously a ton of ground here. Uh, some of this conversation more familiar to the audience, I'm sure subject matter wise than than others. Of course, the jumping off point, the context of this has been Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine. Why don't you wrap us up here, Max? Well, I just want to point out the deep irony in an industry and, and its advocates who have long hated Pierre Trudeau uh, suddenly believing uh, in the National Energy Program with a different label. You know, we want pipelines to Quebec. We want energy self-sufficiency. Uh, you know, it, it, what's old is new again, I guess. And and I appreciate the irony there. But but if we want to help the world, if we want to help our allies in Europe, if we want to make, you know, the world a safer and better place, it's not going to happen by fighting about pipelines over the next 10 years. It's going to happen by getting on with the energy transition, supporting Europe as it moves more aggressively to renewables, uh, green hydrogen out of Quebec, uh, and, and really building a new world, not trying to recreate the old one. 
That's Max Fawcett, columnist with National Observer, uh, former editor of Alberta Oil, Melissa Embarkey joining us, a policy analyst, outreach coordinator for the McDonald Laurier Institute, and David Yeager, author of From Miracle to Menace, Alberta, A Carbon Story. Appreciate the three of your availability today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Have you a great day. Right? Yeah, you as well. Take care, everybody. Uh, I appreciate the comments in the live chat, too. I didn't have a, a, a ton of time to drop in on that. I'm trying to you got to sort of stay on your toes in a conversation like that. And, and we're a little bit all over the place. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, these are oftentimes how the conversations need to go. If you're like me, you and your friends are sitting around in a circle and somebody brings something. You go, yeah, but what about this? Or but how what does that mean for this? Or how does it? And then all of a sudden you go, what are we talking about in the first place? These are exploratory conversations, and we hope that they're enlightening ones for you. Stelly's chiming in and says, I think the story is pretty clear from the point of view of the IPCC. Yeah, there's a new climate report. Sarah Hoyles is locked and loaded, ready to talk about that in just a second. <laughs> We're not trying to ruin your day. We're not trying to go from, you know, war to economic sanctions to covid to, you know, the climate going to hell in a handbasket. But, um, hey, it's real talk. What can we say? Why don't we take a quick breather so I can go on and on and on about the Dodge Ram 1500 crew cab? How about that? Is that a good opportunity for us all to just take a deep breath and start thinking about or what about that 2022 Jeep Wagoneer that everybody's talking about? This is Jeep's re-entry into the full-size luxury class. Then you've got, of course, the classic Grand Cherokee, the best-selling SUV in North American history, right? They've got that Grand Cherokee L right now, which is that third row of seating. It's perfect. Yeah, it's great if you've got, you know, you want to put the dogs back there or whatever. But hey, with regards to camping, with regards to your summer plans, dinghies, oars, paddles, life jackets, coolers, they all go in there. They all fit. I know because I've driven one. I love that Grand Cherokee L. You'll find a better selection on Jeep than you will anywhere else at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. They work together. You can browse their inventories online. Of course, they're only a click away. You'll find them under the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. This week, we welcome Infinity Healthcare to Real Talk, and I love the way that Infinity Healthcare rolls. I said to them, so what do you want us to focus on right out of the gates? They said, we know, Ryan, the minute that you say private healthcare, people are going to bristle. They said, we know that. We said, some people, they just hear private health care. They do not like it, they said, but we're doing it different. They said, what a lot of people don't understand, if you check them out online here at infinity-8.ca, the number eight, you can find them on ryanjesperson.com as well. They work with, for example, Alberta Health Services. If you're already receiving home care, but you are dissatisfied with the quality or the fit of that home care, Infinity wants to work with you and make sure it gets funded. In other words, if I can cut to the chase, you don't have to be rich to utilize Infinity Healthcare. You can learn more about what they're doing. Check out their services and their service areas. Plus, they're hiring under the Sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. Sarah Hoyles is the editorial producer of this show. Not only does she book guests like Chris Alexander and Scott Gilmore in our energy roundtable, but she also keeps her eye on stories as they develop. And uh, do I say in wartime? I don't really know how to make that adjustment, Sarah, but in times of great conflict, including what's happening right now in Kiev, Ukraine and across that country, this Russian invasion, those stories can change. The updates can change minute to minute. So what's going on from your end? What are you watching today? Uh, I think the the biggest piece right now is just the the death toll. Mm. I mean, we're looking right now that there have been at least 136 civilians that have been killed, 13 children included in that number and more than 
400 folks have been injured since Russia invaded. And the number just keeps climbing when we look at the number of refugees that are headed out of Ukraine. We are well over half a million at this point. We are at 660,000 people, mostly women and children, as we know, uh, many of the men have to stay behind because of martial law to help protect the country. Yeah, uh, and, and that's a story, of course, we'll keep an eye on. I, I hate to put it this way, but this is uh, David Common reporting for The National last night, and uh, he showed uh, an image that sort of seared it. It was like an Alan Curdy type image, you know, that four-year-old boy that washed up on shore and, and changed a lot of people's minds. Or I don't know if it changed people's minds, but what did it do with regards to how we felt about Syria? And, and it just, it was like an unignorable, as I say his name, I know a lot of people right now are going to feel in their chest the same as I'm feeling is this heavy bit of emotion because it's just one, it's one child, it's one little boy, but we know his name, right? And we saw his father's face and we saw his, fa- and then we could connect with that, right? And last night it was an image, David Common showing it on CBC and and ahead of time said, listen, this is going to be tough to see. And it was uh, emergency responders in the back of an ambulance working on a child, CPR working on this child. And David said they were not able to bring that child back. And I looked at my wife and we kind of get emotional because you just feel it. And you recognize that this is a war that will be fought now in the cities, right? People are still in these cities. I had mixed feelings yesterday because somebody put out images and I know that they were doing it in a positive way. Like they, they want to talk about the resilience and the courage uh, the steadfastness of the people of Ukraine, and, and in particular in these cities, the people that are that are remaining behind, either out of choice or otherwise, they said it's just as important to show these photos. And it was people sitting at a table at a cafe. It was people that were making their way around. One woman holding flowers with a smile on her face. Now, obviously, uh, that's about to change, uh, if not already. But it's a reminder when you talk about specifically civilian death tolls. Once this starts to hit the major cities in a sustained way. Uh, That's going to be one of the realities of conflict that a lot of people, including me, I guarantee it, are going to have a really tough time wrapping our minds around. Well, when we talk about civilians, I mean, Canada is looking at petitioning the International Criminal Court to, to probe alleged war crimes. I mean, the fact that these are these are civilians, they are going about their lives. We're also seeing orphanages. There are orphanages in Ukraine. They are not being evacuated. And there are food shortages now. So it's <laughs> the idea that we're, we're going to look at getting Russia and, well, Putin specifically, um, war crimes. I think that's that evidence is the fact that this is this is not war, typical war. This is this is brutality. Yeah, um, I feel like we should go to something. Let's go to something light. Uh, and then we'll talk about how the world's about to burst into flames and there's a, a massive inferno coming. Humanity unprepared for the impacts of climate change, says this U.N. report. But, Sam, can you load up that video for me? And I'm going to I'm going to narrate it. Uh, Ukrainian citizens uh, releasing TikTok videos on how to drive abandoned Russian military vehicles. This is uh, it's it's like the, the circumstances of it are far from funny, but it's actually. Yeah, let's roll it, Sam. It's it, it's kind of entertaining to watch if you're watching this on YouTube. YouTube, you can see this. This is just a gal who's like out for a walk. She's a civilian. She's got painted nails and she's wearing a nice coat and a scarf and she's behind the wheel of an armored vehicle and she's showing on her TikTok exactly what it takes to get it started. You can hear her clicking all the switches up. 
I'm not sure if Sam, she's arming the missiles or what she's doing there. She pulls it into gear, pushes in that clutch. And there she goes with the hatch up. She's dressed like she's going grocery shopping. And there she is behind the wheel of this armored vehicle. Not funny, but kind of funny. A, a, a mild moment of levity in what is otherwise a pretty heavy situation, Sarah. Yeah. I mean, you got to take it where you can get it. Yeah. Um, these are people's lives. Um, there are families. There are friends. There are people trying to keep their hopes up. I mean, the president also, you know, trying to rally people's spirits. So, but you know what? Also, if I can say, it's also instructive in the mm. se- in the sense that you know, I'm, I'm seeing tweets from people that are saying on Ukrainian radio, the hosts are lit. I mean, it's like a show like ours. And they're bringing on guests to teach people how to make Molotov cocktails. Cocktails, yes. You know, and, and the whole thing of like how to drive a Russian, uh, an abandoned Russian military vehicle, not necessarily like just for shits and giggles. Uh, it's it's like there's going to be farmers and there's going to be people in the urban centers and everything else. They're going to fight like hell right now. Uh, a lot of these people, I mean, they're being issued Kalashnikovs and these rifles they've never used before. People don't know. People are signing up for military service. I saw a story yesterday. This guy's an accountant. He's signing up for military service. He ain't going anywhere. I mean, he doesn't have the choice, but he, he says he would stay even if he didn't have to. He's going to fight well, for his country. So a lot of these people, they're going to be getting behind the wheel of these vehicles to fight. There are also stories of folks going into Ukraine. So choosing to, whether they are uh, Ukraine nationals or other folks from around the world, even Canadians are headed that way. They are headed into the combat zone because they want to support it. Hmm. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, but there's also news that Google is uh, disabling the mapping and traffic monitoring. So they, uh, in Ukraine, so Russians can't actually monitor what kind of, uh, congestion or what's happening in traffic patterns Hmm. we're also seeing folks taking down signage along highways and uh it's it remains to be seen if it is uh accurate or not but people saying hey we'll offer you money russian troops will offer you money to go back go back to russia yeah um well, that was, so, and, and that was even yeah, that was even the message uh, from President Zelensky yesterday, saying speaking Russian, uh, saying mm. you know, saying like if you're hearing this, uh, speaking to the Russians, don't believe the lies. Like, put down your weapons and leave. Don't believe the lies. So uh, we'll continue to report on this great job, Hoyles. So this this UN report. I mean, on any other day, we would lead with this, right? Oh, and by the way, we haven't even talked about masks and bylaws lifting and COVID restrictions. And I'm not really trying to pile on people's emotions and make the chest feel heavy. Uh, but but let's get into this climate change report, this UN report. What, what are the Coles notes? What do we need to know on day one here? So report released by the UN saying that we are not even close to prepared for climate change. And it is happening and it is happening faster than we any of us could have imagined and i think there's evidence of that we just have to look not very far to the pacific northwest there is an impending rain has already started uh an atmospheric river we experienced some atmospheric rivers in bc not so very long ago so oregon washington going to be having massive amounts of rain and folks that just are kind of having a little break right now from that amazing amounts of rain is Australia. Brisbane, Australia's third largest city, just received over the weekend 80%, 80, 80% of their annual rainfall in three days. Oh, man. 
Eight people have been killed because of major flooding caused by this rain. So, I mean, your brother's over there, isn't he? He is. Yeah. My brother and his family live in Brisbane and they were, I was talking to them, FaceTiming them over the weekend and just sheets of rain and their backyard. I kept getting updates of how far the water is going up. Luckily their, their home is a little bit higher. um, So they're not experiencing flooding in their home, but the water is the, the public transit has been canceled. So they're not actually going into work. They're working from home. I mean, the pandemic is still going on. They just finished doing work from home because of the pandemic, and now they're working from home because of the flooding. Because of the floods. Uh, there, there's there's a lot of stories here. I won't take us too off track, but um, along those same lines, it was like it was like people in British Columbia, right? It was it was like uh, in, in specific communities where it was wildfire and then floods or floods, then wildfire. I mean, they were just getting hammered and just i mean just the communities were just had to have that stiff upper lip <laughs> to quote churchill right they they just had to and that's another example in brisbane like you're talking about another story that we're following obviously a lot of people escaping war in syria are, are now experiencing their second war as they're trying to get out of where they've been finding refuge and i mean gosh Important to keep our perspective. We do our best. And can I just say, I say this almost every day, but I mean it so sincerely. I'm grateful that we have a community here that's up Mm. for these conversations, conversations on things that matter. We're going to award our email of the month in just a second. I want to tell you, here's something that we can all get on board with. Here's something that we can all use as a healthy distraction from, from real life. DQ's got a new burger menu out at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton in Sherwood Park. Their stack burger collection includes the loaded steakhouse signature stack burger. Look at that loaded steakhouse. The two patties, the crispy onion rings and bacon on there. What? Maybe you're more of a mushroom cheeseburger type stack burger fan. Or of course, there's the flamethrower stack burger. If you really want to ramp it up, take it from a single to a double or even a triple at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount and Baseline Road. And if you're like us, if you're like our family, you, you love where you live. But you look around your backyard, even your front yard, and you acknowledge there could be some improvements to either your curb appeal or to the usable space. Maybe you, you see your neighbors, you know, you know that experience where you go out on a Saturday at like 7.30 and you go, somebody's barbecuing, and you're sitting there and you're just doing work around the house, and then you're like, why aren't I barbecuing? And maybe the reason why you're not barbecuing is because your barbecue's in a nasty part of the yard and it's not level and you're out of propane because you don't have it run gas line run through and the and it's just like by the end of it you might as well just skip the dishes and then that's expensive and then nobody respects you because when's the last time you barbecued anyway why do you even have a barbecue it's time to get in touch with eden landscaping to make sure that your outdoor cook space reflects the pride that you have in your home The design process can start today if you visit them at landscapeedmonton.ca. Got a little worked up there. Maybe speaking from a little bit of experience. I don't know. That's up to you to determine. You know, it is the first of the month, which means that we have collected your emails all the way through February. And one of them has, has risen to the top. As a matter of fact, it debuted at the top and it never went anywhere. Every month we award a official Real Talk studio mug. This is our Real Talk Crescent mug. If your email game's not that strong, you just want to go ahead and buy the mug. You can find it on the merch page at ryanjesperson.com. But we mail for free, obviously, a mug every month to the winner of our email of the month club. And this month it is West Juice. West Juice wrote in to the show on February 10th. 
And this was an amazing piece. Remember this? They were talking about the Ottawa occupation, said when I when I was growing up, I was told that being a good citizen, being a good Canadian was about looking after each other. Canadians were nice. We put flags on our backpacks when we traveled. We didn't want to be mistaken for Americans. You know, now these people show up, some of them, their kids in tow. And I saw they're using kids like human shields at the border crossing. What kind of a culture is this? So there's some strong ISIS vibes going on here, right? Why didn't somebody teach these people the basics? Where were they radicalized? Why don't their priests do something about their barbaric practices, right? You know, well, people are losing their jobs and livelihoods because of these backward goons. This isn't how you do it in this country. Go get a job like the rest of us fit in or fuck off, said West Juice who then revealed, if you're a person of color or a Muslim like I am, this is the kind of stuff I've been hearing about people like me and immigrants like my parents for my 40 years on the planet, right? Went on to say, my parents came here and worked their asses off and built a life for us and thrived. And, and because they didn't have the opportunities back home in their quote-unquote shithole countries, like people have said to us, they love Canada, Right? Went on to talk about how Muslims feel when they hear the supercharged language or when they see these big protests or when they see people that have been, quote unquote, radicalized. Said, I guess the joke is on the so-called old stock Canadians ruining this country. I can't believe it's happening. That from West Juice. Of course, read the full email the first time around. It landed with this audience in a big way. We had people writing in, sending me emails personally just to say West Juice better be winning the email of the month for February. And so congratulations we'll be in touch the mug is on its way you can send us an email anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com we very sincerely care about what you think about what you're hearing here on the show coming up on tomorrow's real talk this guy has rocketed to social media stardom he's closing in on a quarter million tiktok followers thirty thousand on twitter it's his straight up takes on the occupation a whole bunch of other things captain kobe my guest plus a panel discussion talking to ukrainians in canada including orisia boychuk from the ukrainian canadian congress that's coming up we'll talk to you tomorrow Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Editorial producer, Sarah Hoyles. Technical producer, Sam Brooks. Managing director, Josh Dunford. Account coordinator, Tanya Franklin. Merchandise operations, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.